You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, kitties, and welcome to my world. I would come over and say hello to you, but it's just as easy for you to come to me. Yes, yes, come in. You've come to the right place. This is where you'll learn everything there is to know about your furry feline friends. I'm talking about cats. Yes, I know. We are positively perfect pets. What do you mean I have attitude? Why, of course I do. I'm a cat. It's called Catitude. As I was saying, this show is all about cats. Cats and... Um, oh, yes, uh, cats. So let me introduce you to my accomplice, I mean assistant and host of Catitude, Tom Doc. Okay, Tom, tell them how wonderful we cats are. It's okay, you have my permission. Welcome to the Catitude channel on Pet Life Radio. I'm your cat host with the most. I'm Tom Doc, and let's spend another day talking about those wonderful feline friends the cats and of course we've gone through many of our major popular breeds already but the cats that we're going to talk about today are actually the fourth most popular cat in the united states per the cat fanciers association and this was as of 2007 so just last year i'm talking about of course abyssinians and we'll also spend a little bit of time talking about their long-haired cousins the somalis now these are absolutely wonderful cats for people who want kind of like their piece of the wild kingdom these cats have a definite look that's reminiscent of a cat that's literally walked right out of the jungle they've really got this look of the african wildcat uh, the genus and species name of the african wildcat is felis libica and they look and of course the wildcat has been very important in developing our domestic cats over the thousands of years but they tend to look a lot like these african small wildcats that run around in the savannah now beyond looking wild abyssinians and somalis actually make very good house pets for people who want active cats now these are not your persians or your hemis that want to sit there on your lap and get lots of attention they do want attention but they are intensely curious good problem solvers and from what I've read from breeders, basically, many people who have Abyssinians often will not want anything else as a pet. Now, I've not owned Abyssinians myself. I've not really even dealt with any in the um, veterinary trade or the pet trade, but they certainly have piqued my interest as I was doing my research about them. I also want to spend a little bit of time talking today, after we get back from our second break, about those two nasty retroviruses that we hear about all the time, and that's feline leukemia and feline immunodeficiency virus and of course these are very important things very important diseases that you all need to know about and even though you may not think it could happen to you i've got a few things that i can tell you about these two diseases so without any further ado let's go ahead and take our first break let's hear from our sponsors hear what they have to say and also thank them for allowing this wonderful show to go on in fact all the shows on pet life radio but before we go Let's do our trivia quiz, and this is something that I've started doing, and I hope that you're all enjoying it. Now, Abyssinians that we're going to be talking about today were first brought back to Britain somewhere in the late 1860s, early 1870s, and they were brought back from Abyssinia. My question to you, and this should be pretty easy, what is the current name of the country of Abyssinia? We'll be right back after these messages. 
Ooh, do I hear a can being opened? I believe I smell tuna. Catitude will return after these messages. That should give me enough time to investigate what's going on in the kitchen. Don't have a hissy fit. We'll be right back. I love cleaning the litter box, said no one ever. Luckily, there's World's Best Cat Litter, the litter that promises less mess with less litter. Only World's Best Cat Litter uses the concentrated power of corn to quickly trap odors in tight clumps. And quick clumping means you never have to chisel or scrape the box. Less cleanup with less wasted litter? That's a litter bit amazing. Save $2 on World's Best Cat Litter. Visit www.saveonworldsbest.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. How dare they open a can of tuna and make a sandwich out of it? I can see why some of my celebrity pals prefer lasagna. Well, anyway, I did manage to grab myself the canary while I was in there. Quiet, bird. We're going to hear the rest of my show, Catitude. If you behave, I may not eat you. Until later. Okay, Tom, you may continue. Welcome back to Catitude. Did you get the trivia answer? What is the current name of the country that was known as Abyssinia? Well, if you guessed Ethiopia, you're absolutely correct, and I hope that wasn't too difficult of a trivia question. And we're talking about Abyssinian cats today, and of course, these cats were first showing up in England around the 1870s, but the origins of the breed are still somewhat of a mystery, and it's Again, like many of our cat breeds, there's exotic stories about where they originated. They certainly look like cats that are depicted in Egyptian art. You have the statues of those cats who are have the very alert posture, the body type that's reminiscent of an Abyssinian, very svelte cats. And so a lot of people think that they originated in the Nile Valley. And certainly, with people bringing these cats, the soldiers bringing cats back from Abyssinia or Ethiopia, certainly that would... Uh, tend to agree with that. But there are genetic studies that are going on now, and in case you didn't know, the Abyssinian was the first cat to donate its genome to science to uh, give us an idea of how cats' genetics work. Genetic studies are now showing that the origin of these cats is somewhere along the coast of the Indian Ocean and Southeast Asia, so a little bit further east than where the cats were actually coming from. Now, there is a book at the conclusion that was published at the conclusion of the English war that was going on in Ethiopia at the time, where it's showing a lot of these soldiers bringing the cats back, and it shows a picture of a cat with a ticked coat and certainly no discernible tabby markings that you can see at all. And the description reads, Zula, the property of Miss Captain Barrett Leonard. Now, this is probably the very first Abyssinian that we know of that made it into England. And of course, like anything new that came in over there, they took off immediately. And we're actually starting to see show cats showing up in England as early as the late 1870s. And then, of course, things started coming over here to North America. And the first Abyssinian that was registered by the CFA was actually registered as early as 1917. But here in America, we didn't take to the Abyssinians quite as quickly as the British did. And we really don't see the good, high-quality show cats coming in until about the 1930s. And these were when the show cats were imported over from Britain. 
And also, like a lot of the cats that we have talked about already, World Wars One and Two really decimated their populations. In fact, in North America, after World War II, the population of Abyssinians had actually gotten down to 12 cats. There's a really good website that you might want to go to that talks a little bit about the Abyssinian history, actually shows some names, um, some very old pictures of Abyssinian cats, as well as the cat's names. And the website is abyssinianclub.com. So that's pretty straightforward, abyssinianclub.com. And like the CFA website, they've got the colors and the standards, but also give more of a breed profile and a lot more of the history. And I think, um, like all of our cat friends, this is such an interesting development, how these breeds were developed over the course of time. Now, the Somalis, on the other hand, are much more of a recent development. As we know, as we talked about before, long-haired cats are simply a recessive mutation. So long hairs can show up in any type or any breeding program because of the recessive mutation, the recessive gene. And long-haired Abyssinian kittens were showing up probably as early as people started breeding them. But it wasn't until the late 1960s, so just 40 years ago, that the Somalis actually started being bred purposefully. And just like their Abyssinian colors, these are excuse me, Abyssinian cousins, these are cats that look like they've just walked out of a jungle. In fact, their nickname is the fox cat. And I think that that's a pretty interesting thing for the Somalis. Because if you do, if you look at this cat, because of the ticked coat and the big tufted ears, they do somewhat look, and the look is reminiscent of a fox. Now, the first official Somali to be shown was in 1979, and certainly this is a breed that we need to watch because they are very active and intelligent like their Abyssinian cousins, but just not a lot is known about them at this point in time. I think the thing that is so interesting to me about the Abyssinian cats is that they are very unique genetically. There's a single mutant coat pattern gene that makes them what they are. And we've talked about this before, that all cats are genetically tabbies. And you get some of these cats, like the solid-colored Persians that don't show any tabby markings. Well, if you get them in a strong enough light, you'll probably see some striping. And certainly, anyone who has raised cats knows that most kittens are born with tabby markings on their tail. Now, tabbies can come in basically three patterns. You have your typical mackerel pattern, which is a striped, and this is what you'd see in wild cats. The stripes, it's got the M on the forehead, and this is because of the banding of the each hair, excuse me, each hair shaft has banding of color on it, which is dark at the tips and light at the roots, and it's alternating, and it gives you that striped appearance, and certainly it's a type of camouflage. Now, the second type is the tabby that we're more used to, and that's the classic or blotched. Some people will call it a spotted tabby and instead of the stripes running the entire length of the cat what you have are spots because those stripes are broken up now this is also very interesting genetically because it's not a single gene um, as far as the splotching or the blotching of the cats go it's actually polygene so cats who have more of these genes are going to show more of a spotting type of coat coloration and our third tabby, of course, is who we're talking about today, and that would be the Abyssinians, and they're known as the ticked tabbies. Now, again, they're just like tabbies in that they have the four to six bands of color. Now, Somalis, being long-haired, will have up to 12 bands of color, but they don't have 
as much coloration in the guard hairs. And so you get more of this tick pattern. In fact, when it was first shown in England, people called it the hair cat or the bunny cat because the coat is very reminiscent of a rabbit. In fact, if you'd look at them and look at a rabbit side by side, it would be very difficult to tell which is which if you didn't see the body type or even the head of the animal. So they're very unique genetically. They come in several different colors. Right now, the ruddy, which is the typical Abyssinian color that you see, is um, the main color. And then there's reds, blues, and fawns. Now, when these first came over, silver was a very, very popular color. And so back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were lots of silver Abyssinians being shown in the show ring. However, it's not as popular anymore, although we are starting to see a little bit of a comeback. Silver is not recognized at all by the CFA. Now again, if you would like to see what these colors look like, you can always go to the CFA website and there's a beautiful cat, a blue Abyssinian female that's the 10th best cat in championship. You'll find that on their championship page and she's just absolutely gorgeous. Her name is Zenders BBC Late Night and you can see why people become so infatuated with these cats. Just looking at her head, you can see the alertness and the intelligence behind the eyes. And of course, the AbyssinianClub.com also has pictures of all the recognized colors at this time. The ruddy or usual coloration, and there's a great picture of Harrow's Jake up there. And what I really like is the sorrel or the red. And we have double trouble there, and I think given the posture that she's showing in this picture, it's probably very true. She's kind of stretching and looks like she's about to dig her paws into something or her claws into something. There's blue Abyssinians and also fawn Abyssinians listed on this page. That's a good place for you if you want to start learning more about Abyssinians and taking a look at what their coloration looks like. Again, AbyssinianClub.com. Now let's talk a little bit about their body type. Now, certainly we know that they're not the heavy cobby body type that we see in our Persians and exotic short hairs, but they're really not as angular or as long as the Siamese. They're really kind of somewhere in between. And just like Goldilocks said, they're kind of just right. First thing that you're going to notice is the large almond-shaped eyes, and right behind that is the large flaring ears with tufts. These cats always appear to be listening intently, no matter what is going on. Very unique body shape. Again, it's not the Siamese, and it's not the Kabi Persian type, but it's a long cat, it's a lean cat, but also a very powerful cat. They've got a pretty long tail, which I think is very important to them because they do like to be up vertically. They're very active and very independent cats. I kind of talked about that already, but they do tend to be very gentle and affectionate to people. All the websites that I looked at and all the breeders that I talked to said that they're not always the best choice for a multi-cat household, especially if you have a preference for female cats, whether it's they're so demanding or because they tend to get into the other cat's territory. I'm not sure why, but everybody repeated that everywhere that I looked. The nice thing is they are very quiet cats, even when they're in heat. They don't have the loud, boisterous voice of our Siamese. The probably one of the drawbacks, although this would be something that I would actually probably enjoy, would be the fact that these guys are very busy and they're very good problem solvers. And so a lot of things that I read said that they know how to open latches for cabinets, open doors, and of course, 
anything can grab their attention. They might be watching birds out in the uh, yard run around, and they'll do that for hours until you start the can opener. Well, we know that that's very typical of all of our cats, but this is definitely a cat that you're going to have to interact with, and you need to give them lots of vertical places to go. These are cats that truly seem able to defy gravity. There's no place in the house that they can get. They love to be up vertically, so definitely want to get tall scratching posts, scratching trees to make sure that they can get up and explore the vertical part of your household. They are pretty easy to groom. Even the Somalis, the coat doesn't tangle easily. So both the Abyssinians and Somalis, just a good brush down once a week would probably be the best thing as far as maintaining their coat, bathing just as needed when they get dirty. There are some famous Abyssinians out there. I've already mentioned Cinnamon. It was the first cat to have its genome published, and we're very thankful to that because we can learn lots about genetic diseases that are affecting our feline friends. And if you are a Disney buff, you might remember Jake, the kit, excuse me, the cat from Outer Space. This was a Disney movie way back in the 1970s, so I guess I'm kind of showing my age a little bit. And Jake was actually played by a brother and sister Abyssinian, Rumpler and Ambler. So if you get a chance, check that out too. That seems like it's a, a pretty fun movie. Health-wise, Abyssinians and Somalis are pretty healthy cats. They do have a couple genetic concerns that breeders are working on, like most purebreds, trying to breed out of the breed, and that is a pyruvate kinase deficiency, which is an enzyme very important for the health of red blood cells. If you're deficient in this enzyme, your red blood cells don't do as well, they don't mature as well, and they tend to be removed from the system by the spleen, and so what happens is you, you tend to be anemic, and that's what happens with these cats. They also have more fragile red blood cells for a reason that's not quite known at this point in time, but the increased osmotic fresh, excuse me, pressures in the bloodstream a lot of times will break apart their red blood cells. They also, one final thing to watch for is progressional excuse me, progressive retinal atrophy. And that's where the cats basically go blind. And this starts happening about three to four years old. So the unfortunate thing is a lot of times these cats have already bred and passed these genes on. And they are looking at a lot of genetic testing for some of this. The pyruvate kinase deficiency does have a test that you can get from a couple of the veterinary colleges across the United States. So that's a little look at our Abyssinians and our Somali friends. Certainly a cat for someone who wants an active cat, uh, but not a cat that's going to do well in a multi-cat household. We need to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to focus in on those nasty diseases, feline leukemia and feline immunodeficiency virus. We'll talk about what they are, what they do, and how they can affect your cat, and maybe think about whether or not you should be vaccinating for them. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after these words. Ooh, do I hear a can being opened? I believe I smell tuna. Catitude will return after these messages. That should give me enough time to investigate what's going on in the kitchen. Don't have a hissy fit. We'll be right back. Molly, here's your dinner. <coughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. 
It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your cat tree tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. How dare they open a can of tuna and make a sandwich out of it? I can see why some of my celebrity pals prefer lasagna. Well, anyway, I did manage to grab myself the canary while I was in there. Quiet, bird. We're going to hear the rest of my show, Catitude. If you behave, I may not eat you. Until later. Okay, Tom, you may continue. Welcome back to Catitude. Once again, this is Tom Doc, and we just spent a little bit of time talking about Abyssinians, but now we're really getting into my favorite part of the show, and that's talking about the cat's health. And as some of you may have seen in some newspaper articles recently, we know that there's about 81 million cats out there in North America, but the unfortunate thing is that our cats don't get the same level of veterinary care as our dog friends do. And so what happens is not only is it a monetary thing where people will spend less money on their cats, but many cats just don't go to the veterinarian at all. And I think because of their independent nature and their ability to take care of themselves, some people think that cats really just don't get sick or that there's not much out there that's going to bother cats. But we as cat lovers know that that's definitely not the case. There are two very serious diseases that sometimes I think people forget about, and that's the feline leukemia virus and feline immunodeficiency virus, or you could also, to a certain extent, call it feline AIDS. A lot of people will overlook these, and one of the reasons is simply that the leukemia virus, when it first came around, when we first started seeing it in the um, 60s and 70s, was so serious, and then we came out with a vaccine so quickly, and really we cut down the number of cats that were affected by this. But there's still a lot of cats out there that are infected with the leukemia virus, and you may not know it because they aren't going to show any signs. Let's do a little history here, first of all. Both of these viruses, the leukemia virus and the immunodeficiency virus, are retroviruses. Now, you may think that retro is good because you like listening to 80s music and you have no idea how much that hurts me to say that 80s music is now retro. But um, retroviruses for cats are not good. And in fact, they're not good for people either. Both of these viruses are related to HIV, which is the cause of human AIDS. Now, all of these viruses have... RNA is their genetic material. You may be familiar with DNA as the genetic material, but RNA is also a very important component of our bodies carrying out the messages that the nucleus of the cell that the DNA is wanting the cell to do. And what happens with these little viruses is they will insert their RNA into a cat's cell or human cell. Any retroviruses can do this. And then that RNA switches to DNA and it will actually insert itself into the chromosome of that animal. And so now they're hidden from the body's defenses. The body doesn't know what's going on. There's no signs. There's no symptoms. And so they'll lay dormant for months or even years. And I'm sure that you've heard that with the AIDS virus that many people don't know that they've had the AIDS virus until five, six, or even seven years go by. 
like the AIDS virus as well, leukemia and feline AIDS hinder the host's immune system. So what happens basically is the cat's going to become more susceptible to normal common infections and these simple infections then all of a sudden become life-threatening. Now, even though its name suggests that it's cancer, feline leukemia is not a cancer, but the virus can cause cancer in the cat. In fact, this disease is associated with more illnesses and more deaths of cats than any other infectious agent. Experts are estimating that the prevalence of feline leukemia is probably 2-3% to of the cat population. So that means about somewhere around two to two and a half million cats in North America are potentially infected with feline leukemia and could potentially spread the virus. Also, the feline immunodeficiency virus, we don't have as good of numbers, but it is estimated that's probably about a million cats are affected with that disease as well. Carriers of both of these diseases, both leukemia and both AIDS, appear to be healthy and they're not going to show any signs of illness and so this could be a problem for you if you are out one day and you've got your cat friends at home and you drop by a rescue facility a humane society you know wherever you like to go and all of a sudden wow here's a new cat and wow it's tugging at your heartstrings you've got to get that cat you take the cat into the new household well if you've never tested your original cat or if you don't test this cat now there's a problem where you could get some cross-contamination in both animals could get the disease. Now, how are these diseases spread? Well, first of all, feline leukemia is spread through intimate contact of cats. So this is a social contact disease. These are cats who are grooming each other a lot or sharing their food and water bowls. Pregnant cats, nursing cats, can also pass this virus on to their kittens. It is possible that your cat can get it outdoors being in a fight, but generally from what we see, most cats get it because they're sharing a household with a feline leukemia positive member. And that's why it's so important to test your cats. Now, leukemia, or excuse me, the feline AIDS virus is spread among fighting cats. So as you would think, this disease tends to be a lot more common among the outdoor male cats. And again, this is why it's so, so important to test your cats for these diseases so you know what their status is. And before I forget, let me just reiterate a point here for you. It is not possible to get feline leukemia or feline AIDS from your cat. They are totally separate from the human AIDS virus. Although they are related, you're not going to get AIDS from your cat. There's an association out there, the American Association of Feline Practitioners, or the AAFP, and they do recommend that you test your cats routinely. And so this means whenever you bring a new cat in the household, if your cat tends to go outdoors, you know, we a lot of times talk about not letting our little kitties go outdoor, but, you know, let's be honest, a lot of us do let our cats go outside you want to test them at least once a year to see if they've got either leukemia or AIDS because, again, they're not going to show signs. If your cat is sick, regardless of any past testing, you should test them again because, again, this disease can be latent. You may not have seen a positive result on the earlier test. So don't be surprised if you have a sick kitty, you take it to your veterinarian and they say, let's test for leukemia and AIDS. Now, again, before you adopt any cat, have the cat tested the good news in all of this, the viruses are not very hardy. They don't survive outside the body very long, and this is true of the human immunodeficiency virus as well. 
also most household cleaners will destroy the viruses so if you're good at cleaning the cat's water bowls and litter boxes and things like that you're not gonna have to worry about the virus staying around i know many people who keep leukemia positive cats who keep aids positive cats they may keep them separate from the other cats in the household but they do keep them because these cats can live for many years um, in a carrier state but certainly uh, they can live for a long time now like i said at the top of this part of our show vaccines are available you can get vaccinated for your cat you can get a feline leukemia vaccine or even a feline immunodeficiency virus vaccine but the aafp recommends highly that you only use these vaccines if your cat is at risk so again if you have a multi-cat household where the some of the cats are going indoors and out you haven't tested them all that's a risk factor for feline leukemia if you have a tomcat or any cat who loves to go outside they certainly have a possibility of picking up feline aids from fighting with other cats and we certainly know that our cats like to do that now, if you go to the American Association of Feline Practitioners website, which is AAF, as in feline, P, as in practitioners, AAFPonline.org, or their new client-friendly website, which is catvets.com, catvets.com, you can find out all of the interesting things that they have to say about vaccination and whether or not your cats are at risk. Now... This is kind of a difficult subject for me because I do believe highly in making sure that our animals are vaccinated well, but I also know that there's a lot of concerns out there over the last 10 to 15 years where people are really, really concerned about their cat getting cancer from vaccines. Well, let me kind of set the record straight here. Your cat, it is possible that a vaccination or any injection could actually cause what's known as a fibrosarcoma, which is an aggressive sort of cancer that you may have been hearing about. What you probably aren't hearing about is that the chances of that happening per the best studies that we have right now are about one in 30,000. They actually did a retrospective study a few years ago and looked at 61,000 cats and there were only three sarcomas um, in the whole group and I think two of them were on the same cat and so they figured out mathematically and statistically that it's probably about one in 30,000 and it can happen from any injection it's happened from vaccines it certainly happened from uh, other injections and it's because of the cat's immune system so while this is a good reason not to vaccinate you also have to keep in mind that if your cat is at risk they are at a much higher chance of getting the disease than they are of getting the cancer that is associated with the vaccine let's back up just a little bit i mentioned that two to three percent of the cat population has feline leukemia so that means somewhere between uh, 1.5 to 2.5 million cats um, we also know that not everybody brings their cats in for vaccines basically and i won't run through all the math but certainly email me if you want me to um, it shows that even if the chances of cancer of getting cancer from the vaccine were one in a thousand we would still have a lot more cats dying from feline leukemia than we would actually having cancer so talk with your veterinarian that's my main point i want to carry to you today is if you have a cat talk honestly about the cat's risk factors 
a lot of us say that our cats don't go outside because we let them run just in our yard or we've got a screened in patio or whatever. But, you know, let's be honest with our veterinarian and say, well, he does go outside. He usually doesn't leave my sight, but I know that he could, you know, he could dart under a bush. He could get scared by a loud car backfiring or maybe a loose dog running through the neighborhood so let's be honest and talk with our veterinarian and then the veterinarian and their staff can actually talk with you and know whether or not it's going to be important to vaccinate your cat so despite all the doom and gloom of all this the outlook for cats is very very promising we know that we've reduced the number of cats with leukemia because of vaccinations and we're really focused now on testing of cats and wellness protocols over just indiscriminate vaccination. We really are trying to do what's best for the pet. And when we do what's best for the pet, that's what's best for you guys too, because we know how much you love and adore your little furry feline friends. So that's my little take on retroviruses today. I hope that you learned a little bit and we're going to be getting another show ready for you. I'm actually going to be heading out to Las Vegas again for the Radio, Television, and News Directors Association. We spend a lot of time at the Veterinary News Network actually focusing on the health of these animals, and we want to make sure that these stories are getting out to you. So watch your local news, watch your paper. If you don't have a pet column in your paper, write the editor and ask for one. Maybe your veterinarian would be interested in providing a weekly column. And certainly here at the Veterinary News Network, we can help with that as well. So I hope you all have a great day. Go love on those little kitty cats. And we'll talk with you next time here on the Catitude Channel at Pet Life Radio. Thanks for listening. Want to know what cats like to eat for breakfast? Mice Krispies, of course. Learn everything there is to know about cats on Catitude with your host, Tom Dock. Each week, we'll spotlight a cool cat breed, give up-to-date advice on cat health, and check out spiffy new cat products. So curl up on the couch every week for a perfectly enjoyable time on Catitude. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Редактор субтитров А.Семкин Корректор А.Егорова